Hey there, listeners. Thanks for stopping by to the podcast today. Please, before you're done listening to this episode, leave us a review. If you're on Spotify, you can review now, and you can also review on Apple Podcasts. But if there's any platforms that I'm forgetting about and you can leave us a review, please do so. If you're happening to watch us on YouTube, and if you don't know, you can watch these podcasts on YouTube now, uh, please like and subscribe to the channel and share the episode as well. So thanks for stopping by, everybody, and enjoy the episode. Stay hungry, stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I have a dream. We'll one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Hello and welcome back to the Knowledge is Power podcast. I'm your host, Max Willett, and today we got another great guest on for you. So if you could go ahead and introduce yourself, that would be great. Hey, Max, and welcome to all welcome to all your viewers. Uh, this is Mike Stenhouse. I'm a uh, Cranston native and um, had the fortune of uh, some really, really great family, really great uh, opportunities in my life. Grew up in Cranston, went to Harvard, played Major League Baseball, and now I'm involved in public policy. One of the few conservatives here in this um, very blue state of Rhode Island, but we uh, we're a public policy think tank. I'm the CEO and founder. It's been 12 years now, and we're trying to improve public policy so that it better serves um, uh, the people of the state. Uh, but I've got a wonderful family, and I've had some really great professional experiences, and and I look forward to sharing some of that with you and your audience. Great. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh and uh, taking the time out of your day to to talk to me, and I and I really look forward to this. Uh, so basically, like I asked most, all my guests, is if you could just tell us your life story, you know that Whoa. would be great. I'd love to hear. It. Yeah, <laughs> that's a long one. That's a long. That's okay. One. Wait, I got time. How far back you want to go? As far as you want. Well, um, I was actually born in Pueblo, Colorado. So it, it, it's, it's, it, that's really cool on the one hand. Uh, but on the other hand, I can't say I was born and raised in, in Rhode Island. Uh, but I was certainly raised in Rhode Island. My dad was uh, at the time playing minor league baseball. Uh, my dad ended up being a, a all-star pitcher for the old Washington Senators after graduating from URI. But in 1958, he was playing ball for a Pueblo, Colorado team. And uh, that's where I was born. And uh, we only, I only spent a few months there, you know, the, that summer before com- coming to Rhode Island. But I will say this. Uh, I think my dad's next start, he was away when I was born. He was on a road trip. And his next start, a few days later, he pitched a no-hitter. So that's, that's, that's the great inspiration I was in his life, uh, uh, Max. Um, you know, grew up in Rhode Island, went to a great public high school, Cranston East, and um uh, here in Cranston, Rhode Island, um, was lucky enough to uh, play baseball and basketball and get good enough grades to get into Harvard, where I became an All-American baseball player. I was drafted out of there. I was an economics major there. Um, you know, I'll go through it quickly, and then we can dig in wherever you would like more. Um, I um, played uh, how many years? Eight years of professional baseball. Uh uh, parts of five years in the major leagues with the Expos, the Expos who drafted me, the Expos, the Twins, and, and even 1986 with the Red Sox. In fact, I got my Red Sox ring here. 
let's see if I can put it up to the camera from the um, 1986 American wow. League Championship team. I was, uh, I was, you know, that year I spent half the time in Pawtucket and, and a third of the season in Boston. Didn't get a lot of playing time, but I was on the team and Bill Buckner and Clemens and Boggs, all those guys were my friends and still are. Um, God bless Buckner's soul, by the way, uh, who we lost a few years ago. And um, and then after that, I did a bunch of different things, entrepreneurial things, which I know was one of the things. I mean, I, I didn't have a lot of money and a lot of risk I could take, but I did I did do some startup ventures and have largely been working for myself since then. I did have a short stint with Staples, a Fortune 500, maybe even 100 company. That was a great experience. I was one of I was with one of the first major dot-com companies back in uh, 2000 and 2001. Uh, that was a great experience and um, some other small business ventures. But for, like I said, for the past 12 years, I've been involved in public policy. And my family side, I've got um, two great boys in their 30s from my first marriage and one great third son from my second marriage who's in his mid-30s. My parents are still alive. I've been blessed. Uh, and um, and that's where I am right now. Very cool. I, I forgot to mention in the beginning of the podcast, uh, before anybody you know messages me, I did have your brother on the podcast, uh, Dave. It was a great episode. I, I think that was, oh gosh, a few months ago now. But he's yeah. a character. Yep that was a that was a great episode, and uh, enjoyed talking to him. But <clears throat> excuse me, first brother duo that we've had on the podcast. So All right, yeah, ten men, ten men, as we call ourselves. Yes, sir. Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, as you know, I mean, we talked about a little bit about this, but I love baseball. You know, it's, it's the greatest sport on the face of the planet, uh, in my opinion. And I know that's very controversial. Red Sox suck right now, but, uh, <laughs> what can, what more can you ask for? I'm tired but, of these first to last things. I got to tell you that max. Oh my gosh. It happens all the time. It's ridiculous, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, if you want, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit more in detail of your, your baseball and, and sports career, uh, to begin with. Uh, so let's start off, you know, like in high school, were you a, a multi-sport athlete? Yes, I was, uh, my dad, just like my dad, my dad played varsity, uh, basketball and at uh, university of Rhode Island. Um, in fact, up until recently, he was still one of the top 20 scorers of all time at URI. But I think a few players have eclipsed him since then. And then he went on to be a professional pitcher. So, so, you know, because of my dad, I was had great instruction and incentive to follow those two sports. So, yeah. So I was actually a three-time all-state baseball player in high school. And I was also a second team all-state basketball player. And then when I went to, to Harvard, uh, I became an all-American baseball player there, but I did play two years of basketball at Harvard as well. But first year, you could only, a freshman could only play freshman. So I played a freshman season on the freshman team. And then my sophomore year, I played a year of varsity. Then I decided to focus on baseball after that. So yeah, it was a great experience uh, to play two sports. In fact, I encourage young kids, um, you know, with all the AAU and all the specialization, you know, they really try to get you pigeonholed in play multiple sports it's better for you as a youngster to learn those other skills helps your body develop helps your hand-eye coordination develop don't just focus on one sport not only do you get burned out but i think i don't i think you lose um physical development i think playing multiple sports makes you a better athlete period and and then you'll have time to focus on your primary sport when you get to maybe high school or college but but as a young person 
uh, if your parents allow you to, and if it can be done safely, play as many sports as you can. Absolutely. And do you think that, uh, is that lost or do you think that's still going on with a lot of current athletes? Well, I think the I think the focus, the big time money behind these AAU teams and the sponsors behind them, you know, the students we see it, you know, you're a you're a graduate of the Rhode Island Baseball Institute. The you know, that's the the instructional uh baseball school in, in Warwick, Rhode Island for, for young young kids. You know, I think it's age eight through high school and and um and we've seen that. Yeah, you know, I used to instruct there and my brother was one of the founders. My dad actually was the founder. And um, my brother is now, you know, along with John Mello. Um, and we see that. I mean, kids are now at, at a young, young age are really being pressured to, to, you know, when they join an AAU team, one of the conditions in most, many of them is you can't play any other sports. We've got a year round mm-hmm. program. We'll play games in the fall, you know, talking baseball and, and doesn't leave you time. In fact, they prohibit you from playing all the sports, even in even in high school. A lot of coaches are saying, hey, if you're going to play football for me, for instance, I don't want you playing any other sport. I think that's wrong. I think it's narrow minded. And I do think listen, that's true for the elite athletes, right, for the athletes who have a chance to go on to, to have maybe a college scholarship or, or something like that. They're the ones who are being focused into um into a single sport and i just don't like it i listen i understand from a business perspective but being young and being an athlete is not about business at that age i'm sorry mm-hmm. absolutely i think i think uh it's always good to have opportunities to play aau at a young age uh and i think uh ribby and the bandits are one of the few programs that actually encourages kids to go play other sports because uh you know i know i know i coached a team this summer and and I had no issue with it. I, you know, I definitely encourage, I still think baseball is better than those other sports, but I think it's necessary because it, it will make you a better athlete and a better baseball player. Well, no you know, question for me, playing basketball got me in top physical condition. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. I was, I, you know, come every year coming out of my basketball season. I mean, everybody else was just starting to get their bodies in, in shape, if you would. And I was already there, you know, so Clearly, it was a huge help for me to play basketball in the uh, in the um, winter and early spring. So I'm I'm curious to hear, you know, like so obviously you played in the minors and the major leagues. At what point, like when you were in high school or college, did you realize, you know, holy crap, you know, I might actually have a shot to get to the minors and, and beyond? Well, I think I think the possibility became real for me my senior year in high school. Uh, when I hit, I hit something like 580. Um, um, And the scouts were there. And Mm -hmm. my dad, of course, being a former big leaguer, being a former coach, you know, he coached 10 years at Rhode Island College, 10 years at Brown University. So he not only did he play with many of the scouts, but many of those scouts were scouting his players, right? So he knew the scouts in the area and they were obviously there watching me. And uh, by the time uh, the the pre-draft came in June, I had already been accepted to Harvard University. So scouts would come to rather. So I had the advantage of having an intermediary, my dad, and the scouts would talk to him and say, look, you know, we're very interested in drafting your son. We think he's got potential. And um, he said, well, look, don't even waste your time. He's been accepted to Harvard unless you're going to offer him enormous amounts of money. Back then, you know, like $100,000 was a hell of a lot of money in, uh, in 1976. So, so unless you're offering him six figures, don't even think about drafting him because he's, you know, we've talked about it. He's going to go get the, the Harvard degree, which probably, you know, would be nice to have as a backup in case his baseball career doesn't 
unfold. So, so I didn't get drafted in my out of high school because he told the scouts, you know, that was the condition, but, but at the same time, it also proved to us that, um, that I did have, I was, did have that potential. And then that solidified further my freshman year when I hit 480, believe it or not, 483 as a freshman in division one baseball at Harvard, I was second in the whole country in batting. So at that, so I had to wait till my junior year. So at that point we knew I was on that path. Um, you know, I still to this day hope would have hoped that it turned out a little better than it did, but, but that, but you asked when we kind of knew that's when we kind of knew. And did it, did it affect like your confidence level at all? Like, did it, did it make you want to play better? Or did you feel like satisfied where you were at? Well, um, no, I, I think, you know, having that carrot out there being drafted and playing pro ball was always a dream of mine for sure. So, so, uh, but so while I was always working towards that end, you know, the media make too much of, you know, always really ramped up for this game or how depressing it could be after that loss. You know, athletes don't think that way when you're in the heat of the moment. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're a real athlete with a proper mindset, uh, you're, you're every at bat, every game, you're playing your you're, you're playing your ass off to win, no matter what else is going on around you, no matter what the long-term prospects or lack of prospects are. That's just the way it is. I mean, just, you know, it could be a game of tiddlywinks. You, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to win that goddamn game, you know? Um, so that's just the way athletes are. Um, so that, and that's what I was, you know, when I, you know, when you get into a game and in basketball, that's why I love basketball and basketball, you could kind of let your inner aggression out more because mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, you're running around, it's a high energy sport. You can, you can, you're always either on offense, defense, or transition or something in basketball, right? In baseball, you got to wait your turn. <laughs> and I didn't yeah. like waiting my turn so much, but, but, um, but yeah, so I, I don't think it altered my outlook at all because I, I was always that way. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting to hear. And, and so let's hear, you know, what was it like in the minor leagues uh, when you were, you know, still developing and, and eventually what was it like getting into the major leagues? Well, there's a reason that you don't see high school and college players get drafted and go right to the big leagues. Like you're doing every other sport in football, mm-hmm. a, a high school, you know, you saw it with LeBron James, you know, in basketball, right out of high school and instantly a star in the NBA. Uh, you see it often in college and in every, every sport. It can't happen in baseball. It's just too much of a learning curve. It's why it's the greatest game in the world, because it's the most difficult game in the world to play. Um, it doesn't look it. It looks very relaxed out there. But the 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 skills that you constantly have to learn from high school and college through the minor leagues and then to be a consistent performer at the major league, it's astounding. It, I mean, you just it's just you put a college team – you put any college player directly in the big leagues, they get wiped out, you know, but in, in some, in most, in every other sport, they could instantly be a star. So, mm-hmm. um, so I appreciated the minor league process. I learned so much. You need to be lucky to get good coaches uh, in the minor leagues. I had good coaches, but you know, we can talk about this later, Max, but when I got to the big leagues is when I had the worst coaches I ever had, as far as technical teaching. The worst mm-hmm. coaches I ever had. Destru- actually, destructive coaches wow. I had when I got to the major leagues. Uh, Felipe Alou, who was my AAA manager, one of the great Alou brothers, 
out of the Dominican Republic, along with his brothers, Jesus and Maddie, who all played in the um, 60s and 70s, uh, was really the greatest um, influence on me as a hitter, uh, more uh, mentally as much as physically. Um, so uh, so the, so I really appreciated the minor league de development. It was it's a grind. I was lucky that I had a little bonus money. You know, I was drafted, had a little bonus money. Uh, but, you know, your first year in pro ball, you make $600 a month for only the five months that you play. Mm. And um, and you see, and it doesn't go up unless you're really on a fast path. It doesn't go up much higher for others. And, you know, I want to circle back to my comment about Harvard University going, going there. Um, I remember a call midway through my first year when I was playing with the Expos in single A in West Palm Beach, Florida. And we had some, a good friend of mine had just been released. Um, he signed out of high school, reasonably smart guy, but he, you know, you could just see he wasn't, but he had been playing four or five years at, in, in like a ball or below and hadn't even progressed past that. He was married. His wife was smart. They had a child. Both of them didn't go to college because they wanted to pursue the baseball career. So here he is now at age 23 with a child, no money because baseball didn't pay anything. He was from a small, I forget, Southern town somewhere and they release him. And now him and his wife have zero prospects for, I don't know what happened to him, but, but he was crying. And I called my dad, like, what am I doing here? And he goes, well, you don't forget you same thing could happen to you, but at least you got the Harvard background you know to, to fall back on and it did prove to help me but but think about that think about the think about in chasing that dream the number of of people players and their spouses i mean these spouses many of these spouses are really sharp they all gave it all up to chase the dream both of them mm -hmm. and then after you could be you know some a lot of people play five six seven eight years of minor league ball then get cut you might make a little more money but nothing you could save or ever buy a house with or anything like that and then it's gone then it's over and, and you literally got to rebuild your life starting from zero so you know one thing i want to say i don't know if you've seen any of the news but there is an effort to unionize minor league players mm -hmm. and while in my business i'm not a big fan of public unions uh, by any uh, public employee by any stretch of the imagination and i am a little suspicious of some private unions uh if any group of professionals in this country still needs to be unionized, it's minor league baseball because they are treated like crap. Mm -hmm. They have no benefits. They only get paid for the five months they're, they're playing ball. They don't get paid for going to spring training. They don't get paid for any fall ball or off season, uh, you know, uh, club sponsored stuff. They are completely taken advantage of. And I fully support the effort to unionize, um, minor league players it's a grind yeah interesting to hear because you hear a lot of mixed things about that that minor league union and and i mean you hear a lot of mixed things about the major league union as well because of all the issues that were between the the owners and well unions can definitely get out of hand you're right yeah yeah but uh, it's uh it's it's interesting to hear you say that because um 
Yeah, I, I didn't really know how to feel about what was going on in Major League Baseball earlier this year with the delay of the season. And and I think it's good that most people have kind of forgotten that that's even happened, you know, with the great season of baseball that we've had in the big leagues with Aaron Judge and Albert Pujols, you know, reaching monumental, you know, historical levels of play. It's incredible to watch, but I'm 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 kind of glad that people have forgotten about that because it was sort of staining the game and and, and drowning people out of it. <clears throat> excuse me so well but, there's there's just so much money involved in baseball i mean uh, yeah look on the one hand what player <clears throat> is worth that much money but on the other hand owners and teams you know are bringing in revenues you know 10 20 50 times so you could also say what owner should be making that much money you know so mm-hmm. there is there is there is some there is some justification to sharing the wealth but but when it gets to the point to where it's shutting down the game and hurting the game. I, I think that's where the unions go too far. You know, it's, you know, they're, they're extremely well off. They're among the wealthiest people in, in the country. And let's not be spoiled brats about it on the one hand. Yeah. Negotiate, make your public case, but let's not, let's not shut down the game. Yeah. What do you think of the new rule changes coming next year? I know we're getting a little technical about baseball, but this, I like talking about what I like talking about. So yeah, sure. So do I. Um, I'm mixed, you know. I, there's the there's the there's the um, traditional purity of the game side of me that says let let them play the game. Uh, but you do have to remember, you know, for the integrity of the game. But we do have to remember that this is a fans' sport, and um, it's not about you know more important than the integrity of the game. It has to be the business of the game, mm-hmm. and uh, and it and the rules changes I think are designed to make the game uh, more fan friendly both from speeding up the game with the pitch clock and from, you know, cause these, these, uh, these data driven shifts have certainly, certainly cut down on offense mm-hmm. um, and, and, and offense is what people go see. I mean, everybody appreciates a well-pitched game here and there and all that, but it's not really over the long course of a season what people want to see. So I understand and I accept the rules changes, even if there's a big part of me that, you know, that says, yeah, I wish we didn't have to do it that way. The thing I'm, I'm not even clear on yet, and I haven't even looked into is what, what is the enforcement of the pitch clock? And I, yeah. and, I, and, and I make a very strong line there. We should not be screwing around with the actual game stats, like issuing a ball, issuing a strike. Uh, no, that's 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 screwing around at that level. Hit him where it counts in the pocketbook. If a mm. player delays the game, fine him after the game. But don't screw around with the integrity of the game on the field that way. I don't yeah. even know what the prescribed prescription uh, or enforcement mechanism is. I haven't even seen that yet. But I absolutely think you ought to make it a fine and not something that destroys the ball strikes and other, uh, otherwise integrity of the game. Absolutely. I mean, I absolutely despise a pitch clock. I think it's baseball is the only sport that has no time. It it's it it can go for you know a very long time as as a, a lot of games have, but in that case, you know, I I hate the um run around second base and extra innings rule. I don't like that either. Because I, I want to do away with. I'm okay with the pitch clock because it's getting ridiculous. Some of these pitches, yeah. it's ridiculous. They're killing. They're killing viewership. They're killing it. The, yeah. the man on second base. That's just a union thing. Oh, we don't want guys to play too much. Play much too many extra innings because they might get hurt. Oh, give me a break. 
I think like 80% of games, extra inning games end in the 10th inning anyways. So like that rule totally destroyed, like, like their, their argument about the games taking too long is like 80% of them end in the 10th inning anyway. So it's only one extra inning. I mean, there, there is nothing more exciting than extra innings, you know, bottom of the ninth, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the possibility for a walk off at every, any moment. That's when the game actually gets exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? So, so having the extra innings, I think is fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I, what do you think is the biggest difference between when you were playing in the game and now in modern day baseball? Um, just the statistics. Yeah. Uh, the emphasis on data. It's it's uh, it's ruined the game and not ruined, but it's harmed the game in this regard. A manager, you know, back back when I played, good friend of mine, still I saw him at a Red Sox game, sat with him, uh, J- former Red Sox manager Joe Morgan. We all remember Morgan's magic, uh, whatever year that was when he he took over the team. What year was that? Nineteen ninety? I don't even know what year that was. Eighty eight? I don't even know. But um, great guy, but he managed on instincts. Now statistics are just one more factor to use, you know, a, pl- a player's uh, history against that pitcher or a, a left-right split or something like that. That's just one more piece of information for a manager to make a decision. But it, but the media now positions it as a rule. Mm. Um, no, it doesn't matter if, a, if a, I mean, to the media, I'm saying it doesn't matter if, um, and media pressure, unfortunately, is Believe it or not, media pressure is driving decisions made on the baseball field because they would say, well, look, you should, you know, this is the statistics say you should have brought out a lefty to face that hitter and it backfired and you lost the game because of it. And you're a bad manager. And, and then all of a sudden they're calling for him to be resigned by being a Neanderthal Yahoo or something like that. But there's so many other factors beyond the statistics. So the man, so today the managers are going beyond their instincts. You know, their instincts are. All right. How well is that pitcher that pitcher throwing the ball? How well is the the guy I'm thinking of bringing in throwing a wall? How how well is that how well is that hitter swinging the bat? You know what's the wind conditions? You know you know all all kinds of factors, including statistics, should play into that decision. But it shouldn't be solely based on decision. But managers are now fearful, just like politicians are fearful uh, to to uh, go against the, the media narrative or the government's narrative or something like that. Managers are the same way. And that's mm-hmm. not the way baseball made the beauty of baseball is, is the pastoral green fields and the instincts and, and the mono a mono stuff, you know, with the bat, you know, with the bat and the ball, the pitcher, the batter and all that. So in that regard, I, I think that is a terror. I mean, it's automatic. Now you can predict what's going to happen, right? You know, what's going to happen. The lefty comes up, I got to bring in the lefty pitcher or else I'm going to get crucified in the media. And that that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it. I, I really like the movie Moneyball because I just think it's a good movie. And I, and I love sort of like the, the story of how the athletics became really good that year and how they built a team of a bunch of nobodies and they became something. But looking back on what it did to the game, it's, it's kind of, I kind of, dislike it and i think that guy uh this the head scout who was in the movie and i think was was actually a scout for the athletics or something in real life 
talked about how he still despises Billy Beam for what he did to the game of baseball. He said he ruined baseball. I think his name was like Grady something. I can't remember. Grady, Grady Little? No, no, no. That because he was I mean, that was a Red Sox. What's, what's the argument there now? Moneyball. You ever no, see what's the, the argument? How did how did he supposedly ruin baseball? Because of because of how uh, the book that was written by Bill James wasn't it of about all statistics and everything like that. You know what I'm talking about? Well, yeah, but that's a very different. That's a very different than what I'm talking about. I actually think Moneyball what was the proper way of thinking. You know, when okay, it comes to acquiring players. Okay. You do have to look at their histories and their yep. long term goals. And and I've always felt that um in fact this is a whole nother story. I I, div- I actually got a patent on a on a software program, and believe it or not, ESPN told me uh, it's not gonna work because this internet thing you're talking about, that's just gonna be a fad and go away. <laughs> uh, I developed an internet based software program to evaluate player performance, pitchers and batters. And okay. it, it was, and I've even joked to my friends. I think Moneyball copied me because because baseball didn't appreciate the value of patient hitters who didn't strike out a lot, who got on base a lot, even if their average might not have been high, even if mm-hmm. they didn't hit a lot of home runs. And to me, that's really all that Moneyball was: is how to properly evaluate the value of a player to your team. It's not a in-game situational tool. But when you're looking at what kind of players can we draft, what kind of players, you know, in, in Oakland's case with Billy Bean, what kind of players can we get the most value for our money with? Because they didn't have a lot of money over there. I thought that was absolutely the proper way to use statistics. Uh, Very to make interesting. Long term decision. So, you know, my thing was called Sten Stats, uh, named it after myself. And I still think it's the best player evaluation tool. I just don't have the time. You talk about entrepreneurship. That's one thing I regret, Max. I okay. wish I, I wish I didn't invest more in it because i'd be a zillionaire right now it, it's it you know for all the fantasy leagues and and, and i yeah i had dan duquette like it i had peter gammons like it i went to espn because i had some contacts there and they said oh no this internet things this was like 1999 1998 they said no this internet thing's not going to be anything can you believe that so so um i was i was way ahead of my time with that but uh so i'm gonna i'm gonna I'm going to object with whoever that person was who, who says that Moneyball was bad for the game. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just hard for me not to like the movie just because it is a really good movie and yeah, it's it a baseball is. movie, you know? Uh, but yeah, so let's sort of, uh, you know, flip topics. You know, you had sort of mentioned this a couple of times, but let's go into your entrepreneurial career uh, and um, talk a little bit about how you know what businesses you are involved with and it says on online you are involved with uh uh fortune 500 company like you had mentioned in the intro uh an executive with a dot-com company and an it services franchise so if you want to go into a little bit more detail about those three things that'd be great yeah i don't know that i would categorize myself as a as a true entrepreneur uh you know i'm a, I, I did have some small business startups mm-hmm. but a true entrepreneur would you know would uh, put significant percentages of their of their wealth or income at risk in order to order to chase down a business goal um i never did that in any significant way i did have a number of startup businesses when i when i got done uh playing ball i had a sports event management company where i took advantage of my relationships with 
players and I would run uh, corporate events, uh, you know, featuring players. I even ran fantasy camps. I ran for three years, the Montreal Expos fantasy camp. I did the Red Sox fantasy camp for one year, corporate fantasy camps. So while it was a startup, it wasn't like I, it wasn't like I put my, uh, what little wealth I had at high risk, but I, but I never really earned much. I did, I did invest in a, uh, you mentioned the IT services company. Uh, when I was, um, when I was working for a, um, after the dot-com company, uh, the next, another company I went to, I was traveling everywhere. I was, um, I was doing sales for, um, you know, when they say we're going to go check the tape or we're going to look at the video, you know, video coaching, you go back and everybody's pretty much aware of it now. Um, but, you know, every, every pitch, every at bat, every jump shot in basketball is logged and analyzed. You can go back, you can search out. Let me see all, let me see all three, one pitches that I hit for a ground ball or a shortstop with one out against the Houston Astros. And just like that, you can pull that up, you know, so pitch batters and pitchers and coaches use this all the time. Well, we, I sold that equipment uh, to both major league baseball teams and to NBA teams back in like 2000, what year, what, 2004, five, six, somewhere around there. Um, mm-hmm. Three, maybe even. Yeah. And um, maybe even as early as 2003. And I was traveling all over the country. I had a visit. Yeah, I, I had <clears throat> 58 teams were my clients, you know, and I was traveling everywhere. My kids were just starting to play. Um, little league baseball gosh i don't want to miss all their games i was also doing some you know so i decided to uh invest in a franchise where i could just stay home i gave up a really nice income i never cared about money that much i didn't make never made much money playing ball um and i was making a really good income with that uh digital video company but not at the expense of missing my kids you know growing up and sports career so i i i said i just need something where i can stay in rhode island so I, I invested. I had knew nothing about informational technology and computer services, uh, you know. Uh, um, but I bought a franchise. I hired people who did know about that. And again, it didn't it didn't work out so well. But it sustained me for those critical years of my kids playing ball. And then I got into this. Um, then I got into this public policy stuff around 2010, and I've been doing that since. So I I fulfilled my goal, my family goal. You know, a lot of people. Max, and you know, I, I know it's a little digression from your entrepreneur question, but I just had, you know, I had a reunion with my roommates just a few weeks ago, and they asked me, Stan, do you ever, do you ever regret that you didn't stay in baseball as a coach or as a front office manager? You know, my roommate, Terry Francona, you know, is kind of going to the Red Sox Hall of Fame for breaking the curse, right? And he's still a great manager with Cleveland. There's no doubt I could have had that same path. Many other friends of mine are in the front office. Frank Wren was a general manager, assistant at the Red Sox, head general manager with the um, with the Atlanta Braves. No doubt I could have had that path. But again, that wasn't the life I wanted for my family because that's a very rocky road. You know, when mm-hmm. every time there's a new general manager, all the coaches get fired, all the staff gets fired, and you're at you're at the mercy of you know one day you're in Atlanta one 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 year next year in California next year you could be you know in Cincinnati I don't want that for my family I wanted you know I grew up in a stable family here in Rhode Island it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me and and I and I hope that uh, by by sacrificing fame and money that that my my kids are better off for it. and I believe they are and um, so so. So I have been a small business owner. I, I consider my nonprofit, my public policy nonprofit, sort of a small business venture, even though it is a nonprofit. 
Um, but I, but, but I've been able to stay in this one for 12 years and we've had some, we have some very generous donors. It's risky, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, cause you know, my nonprofits, my small business experience was never designed, you know, an entrepreneur invests a lot, puts a lot at risk and the, and the reward can be equally as high, right? You know, if you're a true entrepreneur or software developer or something like that, or new product, you literally could make millions, right? That was never my goal. My goal was to not put a lot at risk and not look for a lot in return other than a nice steady income. Now that, but like I said, the one thing I wish I had gone back on, the only regret I have in life is not pushing my Sten stats patent in software a little bit more. Max, you're a young guy. It's st it still could make you some money. So let me know if you want to be a partner in that with me. I'll give you half the company, <laughs> all right? Just, just for the sake of it, all right? For your sweat and equity. So there's an offer I want you to think about. All right. <laughs> How about we'll do it? We'll do a. Uh, How often do you get an offer like that on your show? We'll do an electronic handshake. <laughs> okay. <deal. laughs> you want to learn about it? Let me know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Very cool. So that, that's some pretty cool stuff. I uh, had no no clue about that. That's 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 pretty interesting to hear. Um. But yeah. So now I think we should get into. Well, actually, before we get into that. Uh, let's talk about you know your your college career a little bit and uh sort of your view on college because obviously you said you'd gone to Harvard and uh you know there's a lot of controversy around college and how to pay for it and whatever but that's not where we might in get into that later but what's your opinion on the value of a college education now over you know getting maybe a trade or something like that well, I think it's an all of the above thing. Um, look, many colleges um, are priced so high. And again, I won't get into it, but I'll just make the statement. It's because of poor federal policy with all these gen, uh, with all these uh, grants that go to colleges and I mean, to students and loans. Colleges are able, you know, even this even this Joe Biden college forgiveness program, if it if it survives, is going to dramatically raise the cost of colleges because colleges know, hey, somebody's going to subsidize it, right? And so we can charge as much as we want. Mm -hmm. uh, so colleges, I think, have gotten out of control. The prices are out of control. And it is legitimate to question whether or not all that debt or all that money you pay to go to college, whether you actually can, can earn, whether there's an equal or greater benefit coming out on the backside after you graduate. That is a legitimate question. But in many cases, colleges, if you want to be a doctor, you know, if you want to be a lawyer, you know, you, you have to do that. Uh, I think worthless degrees and paying big money. I don't I don't mean worthless, but you know, what I mean, with, with degrees that don't specifically train you for something. I think you're at high risk. We, we always promote trades. I mean, we, I mean, it's the trades that make. Uh, that make. Uh, the country go, mm -hmm. uh, you know, plumbing, you know, uh, uh, car, cars, uh, you know, whatever it is, there's all kinds of trades out there. Lumber, you know, <laughs> we need, we need this stuff and we need, uh, we don't need college trained people for that. We need skilled professionals. And there's, there's no, you know, the, the, the thing I don't like is, is, is how they try to put shame upon those, those industries and those lines of work. And you know, that's where Mike Rowe comes in. So great. He's, mm, you know, his, absolutely. Is it dirty jobs? He calls it. Yeah. Um, you know, that's been such a great eye opener for so many people. He actually spoke. We actually I heard him speak at a national conference that I belong to, and he was just terrific. And um, those are those are the jobs that really make the country go. 
uh, computer technicians and whatnot. So it's an all of the above approach. I, I think there's no shame in anything, just like there's no shame in, in, in a mom or a dad deciding to stay at home and raise the kids. Mm -hmm. um, um, one of my roommates is, is, a, is a Mr. Mom, right? There's no shame in any of that. Um, the, this idea that this, this snobbish elitist idea that you have to go to college and you have to work, you know, put your family secondary. I don't agree with that at all. Uh, I love the trades. Uh, it's, they're the, they're the soul of this nation. They, they make it go. Uh, but again, I don't want to downplay colleges. Yes. They're getting very expensive college. You know, if you're an athlete, mm -hmm. college baseball, like we just said, is, is very much like a minor leagues, you know, in, in many sports. So it's, 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 uh, you know, no other nation has a, you know, college uh, athletic program like we have. Because because all, all the other nations, it's free to go to college. So they can't really afford to have yeah, programs yeah, like yeah. that. Totally different model. So, yep. so it's all of the above. You know, back when I went to college, it, it was very different. You know, Harvard was, you know, expensive for my parents. But, you know, I'll give you, it was like $7,500 a year. Wow. Uh, 70000 70, now? Or something like that. And, yeah. and my parents wow. had to struggle to pay most of that. They let me pay much of the last loan after I got out of baseball. But and I, and that was a struggle for my parents to do. And they did the same for my brother at Holy Cross. Mm -hmm. Um uh, but that's that's okay. You know, you know, I had scholarships to go to Providence College and, and Amherst College. I had full full rides there and we sat down with my parents and um, they said, don't let money be a factor. You go where you want to go and play ball where you want to play ball and study where you want to play ball. Uh, so I chose Harvard and my parents were generous enough to, um, to fund that for me uh, through a loan, through a loan they got. So um, they, mm -hmm. of course you don't get any scholarships in Ivy league. They're not allowed to give out athletic scholarships. And the only financial aid we qualified for was a kind of a low interest loan. Yeah. Well, it's just interesting to hear, you know, sort of how the price of college has increased so much. And it hasn't, I mean, it's increased just like everything else has because of inflation over the years, but it's also exponentially risen in price. Yeah. Sort of like That's how because cars of bad federal policy, very bad federal policy has called caused that. Yeah. It, it just, um, it's interesting to, to see how that happens, you know, compared to other things, you know, a bottle of water might've cost 50 cents and now it costs a dollar. It's like, well, it's, it's, it's now comparing something that costs seventy five hundred dollars to seventy thousand dollars. Yeah, and it and it's it's crazy to see something something like that just totally get blown out of the water and and get so expensive. And then if you go and turn and and then make college quote unquote free, it sort of just devalues it even more. You know, like you know, what's the point of buying a Ferrari if everybody gets one? You know. What's the point of getting a college education if everybody can get one for free? You know, part of part of the getting into a loan is is getting out on the other side and working hard to pay it off. You know, yeah, and then what... there's yeah, you're exactly right, Max. And then there's two other factors. You know, there's the admissions policies um, that um, sometimes even my alma mater has been accused of it, and I think is being sued for it, which is you know racial quotas and whatnot. Um, dead wrong. The most quality, mm -hmm. you know, just like any line of business. That's what's the beauty of sports. It's, it's, I don't, you know, you're never going to see uh, an unqualified person uh, really make it to the big league because you can't, you mm -hmm. know, you either can perform or you can't and mm -hmm. you either have the grades to get in college. You can, or 
But we know that in business, we know that in government, especially people get promoted, even even despite a, a massive track record of failure, because for whatever politically correct reason, uh, that's a person they want to promote. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is ha- happens a lot with with college entries and, and admissions. And that's wrong. And and then you add to that. And again, I don't want to get too political here, but you well, we'll get to that. We'll get to we, that. We've all heard bit. the stories, yeah. but then you add all the crap that's being taught to mm-hmm. these kids in colleges. And you really have to question at certain colleges whether it's worth the money. Yeah. I, it's funny because when I was applying for colleges, I applied to University of New Hampshire, New Haven, URI, uh, UMaine, and yeah, I think that was it. Those four colleges, and there was always, you know, you can get extra money if you're a minority or something like that. And I had friends who were and could get money because of that, and I felt like this is totally unfair. They grew up in the same town I grew up with, great parents, just like how I grew up. And just because they're, I feel discriminated against, and it's the complete opposite of what these people are intending. And it's like, how is this fair? I knew some kids that were minorities and their parents made more money than my parents. So why is it? Politics isn't fair. So why is it fair that these kids are getting money and I'm not simply because of the difference of color of skin? So it's almost like reverse racism yeah it's, it's, a, it's a form of reparations right yep. it, is a, it is a form of that and you know if so if you're a low-income white family versus a low-income black family living in providence uh only the one family is going to get the the reparations if they ever get to that point so it's not fair mm-hmm. obviously just like just like transgender men uh, pretending to be women it's not fair that they compete in women's sports and i'm going to be very outspoken against that as an athlete it's, it's absolutely unfair it's absolutely morally wrong i don't believe any of us should sit around and enable people in their pretend fantasies i just don't think so um you know you yeah. can call me a bigot you can call me a racist you can yeah. call me a homophobe a transphobe whatever you want but that's my god-given belief and i have every right to my beliefs just like just like the other person has a right to their belief hey if you want to believe you're a woman fine you can believe mm-hmm. it. I don't want to stop you if you're an adult. I don't like the idea of forcing kids into that. And not uh, not only don't like it, I vehemently object to it. But um, but don't 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 upset the, the level playing field for everybody else. Do what you yeah. want to do. Live your life just like they told us. Hey, we, you know, what do we what do you care what we do in the privacy of our homes or bedroom? Fine. Then stay in the mm-hmm. privacy of your homes and bedroom. Why do you have to upset society for the rest of everybody else? I don't agree with that. Yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to comment on that. I'll comment on college. But, OK, you know, that that's for that's that's for, you know, we can talk about that later, but no, no, we're not going to comment on it. that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for going there. <laughs> no, that's OK. Uh, you know, but it is my job. You should know yeah. that's what my donors want me to say. Yeah, absolutely. So. Well, and, and I think that not perfectly, but transitions us into, you know, this next portion of the podcast and to talk about Rhode Island Center for Freedom and Prosperity. So if you kind of want to talk about the beginnings of that and how it got started and sort of where the program has uh, gone to, to this point. Yeah. And I'll try to keep it non uh, provocative um, unless you ask me to go there. Um, so we, we um, I've always been uh, conservative without knowing it, you know, Ronald Reagan without knowing what the difference between a Republican or a conservative and a Democrat was a liberal. I just love Ronald Reagan uh, in the 80s. That's when I was playing ball. I just loved his demeanor and the things he said. And I didn't know any. I was naive to politics. But at, when I retired and came back to Cranston and a good friend of mine, Steve Laffey, became mayor of Cranston, I started to 
do a little bit, go to some campaign events, meet some people. And eventually it led the way where this opportunity came up to start my think tank in 2010 and 11. And um, our goal was simple. We, you know, we, we firmly believe to this day that, that, you know, what we might call free market or conservative policies are actually in the best interests of, of uh, most families and all families, especially, you know, if we really want oppor increased opportunity, then we need less government and more freedom. Uh, in our lives. So it, we were formed to be a research and legislative uh, affairs organization. We, we, our goal was to try to conduct honest and credible research, present it to lawmakers and hope they would vote the right way, something like that. Uh, we, we didn't do pure, strict lobbying, but we put our information out there and we testified. You know, We didn't go meet with them in their office and offer to support their campaigns if they would do this. So, yeah, we didn't do any of that. It was just good, open public uh, research. But in our state, the truth of it is, it, it's we all know it's heavily Democrat, but 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 it's become increasing, just like the whole world, everything's become increasingly polarized and agenda-driven, and people were less and less open to research or any other line of reasoning or thinking. And about two years ago, we decided there's no hope. You know, nobody in this state is going to give any any consideration to any any research we present them or any perspectives we we put forth. So we decided and we're transitioning our company now uh, to become a media company. We've decided let's try to influence public opinion then. So we now are our main, so instead of uh, our main website, which was rifreedom.org, we, we now are putting almost all our effort into oceanstatecurrent.com, which is the media arm. of my organization. I have a video blog, just like you've got a show here. I've got a video blog show called In the Dugout with Mike Stenos. I use the baseball theme. It's why I wear a cap all the time. And I bring in guests to talk, parents and lawmakers and economic experts and educational experts and children's experts. And, and we, we talk about the, the compelling public policy issues uh, of our time. Um, you know, to show you the polarization, you know, we, we believe in honest debate. That means back, that means respecting and considering both sides of the argument. That's all we've ever asked for help. Hey, consider our side of the argument too. But in today's cancel culture, we they wouldn't allow our side of the argument to go forward, you know. Um, and we were always, you know, called names and we were always, you know, canceled or ignored or whatever what happened. And and it's and it's still true. I try to invite uh people with opposing views on my show because I believe in honest debate. I'm not gonna Crit I, I, we criticize ideas, not people. And people, most people on the left in the other in the ruling party, I'll call it, won't come on my show. They just, I don't want to debate. I just want to call you a name. I would never come on your show because you're evil. You're Hitler. You're a racist. You're a this. You're a that. I mean, it's it's bogus, but it's the perfect uh, exemplification of how our society has changed today. So. So that's all the more. So we are still we're So we, we, we have all kinds of content. We have audio, video, posted content. And um, and we've, we're really growing. I think we're the fastest, you know, all digital news source. Uh, we, we are not a, we're not a full scope news organization, but we, we, we focus on the issues that we think are important. And uh, we're really pleased with where we're going. We're just in the beginning stages. So if you talk about entrepreneurship, you know, this is sort of a sort of another entrepreneurial you know it's not my money we're investing but i do have some don donors are investing in in uh in our idea to become um 
uh, a media, a trusted media source in this state that provides a common sense perspective. So that's that's how we've transitioned just in the last few years, and uh, and I'm very excited about where we might be in the next few years. Interesting, yeah. Because if you want to give yourself a, a a plug on your podcast, you can go ahead. Uh, if you want to go ahead and give yourself a plug. Yeah, it's uh, just go to OceanStateCurrent.com. Uh, right at the top, you'll see. I mean, the flagship, uh, the flagship uh, show, or if you would, of um, of OceanStateCurrent.com is my in the dugout um, video podcast, which which is featured prominently on the homepage. So just go to OceanStateCurrent.com. Look around. You can even subscribe if you want to get notified when uh, live events are happening or other new compelling content is posted. Uh, but we 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 do. I do thank you for. Uh, for that max oceanstatecurrent.com yeah no problem and and so i noticed a lot of times you have a you have a dugout in the background so is that just some google image dugout or is that a dugout a prompt is that what what dugout is that yeah let me uh let me bring it up here for you i'll switch it yeah yeah yeah. so no it's just a picture i found off the internet uh, of a dugout it kind (laughs) of has the same colors as fenway park it's not a fenway park uh, dugout i don't i have no idea where that dugout is from but this okay. is the scene, and and my in the dugout show is is supposed to be less of a formal interview ver- and, and interviewee um, mm-hmm. kind of format. It, it's it's supposed to be just just like I did playing ball. We would sit before the game, before we had to go out for batting practice. Sometimes we get to the park earlier. Sometimes we'd even stay after the game with a beer after we showered, or even before we go back in the dugout, just sit there, look at the sky, and just talk. Just bull bullshit can i say that in your show we just bull, sure. bull, bull crap about life girls booze not too often politics at that age but maybe world events mm-hmm. and so i wanted to kind of re- recreate the same thing i want to invite people in i invite all my guests to wear a cap or jersey of their favorite team and join me just like i have my packers on right now and um and, uh, and let's just talk politics. Let's just talk public policy issues. So, mm-hmm. so that's the uh, spirit. We have a lot of fun. I'd like to make it even less formal. I'd like I'd like some of my opposing view people to um, come on my show. Uh, but we'll, we're working on that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's. Uh, I've watched a couple of ep- episodes, and it's pretty interesting stuff. Uh, but. Yeah. So now I guess we could talk a little bit about politics. So it's funny because it's an election year and I enjoy politics. I like listening to a lot of current things that are going on in the state of Rhode Island and, and people that are running for office. I had Ashley Kalis on. I had uh, recently on Monday, Caswell Cook's episode is going to be posted. This is being recorded on a Saturday for people listening. Caswell Cook will be posted on Monday the 1st and then this will be posted on um, the 10th or yeah, on the 10th of October. Um, but yeah. And I had on Blake Philippi. I had on uh man, I'm drawing a blank here. Oh, uh, James Lathrop running for state treasurer. Uh, all, all great people. Um, and I, I, it's just because it's an election year. I think I'm having a lot of political people on. And it, like I said, it's an entrepreneur. This podcast is about people's life stories. And I, and I like to hear people's who are within the, within the political sphere, you know, their life stories. So that's sort of the explanation of why I, I, I'm starting to talk a little bit about politics, but my, my guests rather are talking about politics. So let's get into a little bit of the nitty gritty about Rhode Island and, and, and sort of it, the current state of politics in the state. So my question, my first question to you is, you know, why do you think there has been a massive shifts 
shift and how Rhode Islanders vote for governor. You know, I think is I think it's seven of like the last like 12 governors have been re- Republican. Why all of a sudden has there been this massive shift of a Republican has no shot at winning in this state? Well, it's not just for governor. It's it's all uh, it's all statewide offices. It's a yeah. lot of local school boards. It's it's certainly all our federal delegation. Although Alan Fung has a has a really good chance to to change that streak, I think this year. Um, I I have a theory. Um, and, and, and it's like we talked about earlier with the media. We, we, first of all, so, so between when you have every leadership position, political leadership position in the state, the Speaker of the House, the Senate President, the Governor, every other statewide office, and, uh, and all, your entire federal delegation, two House members, two Senate, and the U.S. Congress, when they're all from one party, and they're all apparently committed to the woke left ideology, or at least appeasing of it. Um, the, and then you have a media that only puts forth their view and criticizes views like mine when I try to, you know, we used to have our reports published all the time. Now the media ignores them. So when only, so when only one point of view is, is largely being presented to the people of Rhode Island, they start believing it. That's the problem we have that there's nobody has broken through. You know, we try to do it, but we're a small megaphone compared to what's needed. Um, and, and, and I think that's what's happening in our state. It, there's such they, they've completely, you know, let's just go use the cancel culture. Now they have completely canceled or at least shut down largely any other prominent voice uh, against their narrative and their narratives are increasingly uh, dishonest not based on the research or science just like we saw with covid i mean we, we now know we we were saying it on this show we've been saying it for two years that no these these vaccine mandates and these vaccines don't work the way they're anywhere near with the way they're advertised at least not for most of the population maybe for seniors these mask mandates on kids in schools is ridiculous. There's no research to support that. There is none. They've never cited any other than the CDC says so, but then the CDC never cites any. The government has become expert at lying to us. I, I'm going to say that flat out. Not that climate change doesn't exist, not that COVID doesn't exist, but the prescriptions they have for it, the, the, um, the urgency and, and the, you know, end of the world attitude that they preach on all this stuff is completely dishonest, but yet there's no prominent voice to refute any of that in our state. So why do you think that, sorry to interrupt, but yep. why? So obviously there's a point where this wasn't the case, you know, even 10 years ago, this, this polarity on either side wasn't really a thing. Why do you think it was the liberal side and the Democrats that sort of took? I'm not, you know, whether or not I agree with either side. Why do you think it's the Democrats that are that are this way and and have gotten to this point? Why do you think they're the ones who are in charge of Rhode Island? Why do you think they're the one who are canceling people, quote unquote? You know, why? Why do you think that's the case? That's such a great question. Um, And I don't know that there is a national or state or international organizing element to this i don't know but it, but they act as if there there's one and here's what i mean by that and this is a this is a, a theme i've talked about 
conservatives, our mistake has been, ignore, you know, up until recently, ignore the cultural issues, put out the research, stand on principles, whether it's religious, you know, we're a nation founded on God or freedom or a nation or defend the founding fathers, beat our chests and say, look, we're the ones standing on principle. You should listen to us. And then we go away and then we don't we don't go to the rallies. We don't do what it takes. You know, we, we go I and mean, we work and most of us work. Right. We're busy raising families. We're busy uh, working, building careers. The left, on the other hand. Has no, you know, they make their arguments, but they are also taking the territory. They are the people in the seats of power. They're the ones getting elected to the school committee, to the town councils, to the general assembly. They're the ones appointed as to head the library or to head the university or head this department or head. They they have made it part of their plan, not just to promote their own principles, which I don't think are very principled, but they actually take the territory in the media, right? They're the ones running the media organizations. Um, and we have just sat there saying, well, we're the principled ones, but that's a, that's a losing, that's a losing strategy. Um, it might be principled, but it's a losing strategy is what we've been. And now that's changing. You know, parents are fighting back. Groups, you know, groups like ours are helping to organize them. Some candidates, you know, are starting to talk the way it is. You know, like I, I give an example, the new prime minister in Italy, Georgia Maloney. Listen to her. Did you ever hear a politician speak like that in Rhode Island? You hear me Absolutely speak not. Like, you hear me speak like that. Now, whether you agree with her or not, yeah. that is a fact. There is no politician who speaks like that in this state. So until we can get off of this, so I don't want to upset the apple cart, I just want to be quiet and stand on principle, go back to my quiet life. Until enough conservatives in this state and freedom-loving patriots, uh, and I say patriots on purpose because you have to love this country, uh, if you're gonna, if you, I, I believe, um, until enough of us start getting off our duff and quit just thinking, well, we're standing on principle. It's going to continue to be this way in the state that, that until we start, we have to start taking back territory and we'll see if it begins with this election or not. So do you think that it's been sort of a, a, a slow race or do you think that there was a turning point where it just instantly the polarity instantly turned and uh, all of a sudden it was just all Democrats, all, you know, people who are left leaning do you think that it was a slow no, race? I think between... it's been a slow race. It's been coming for decades. That's one of the reasons I got involved in this 12 years ago, right? Because mm -hmm. I could see this coming. I could feel it coming. And I, I what was I, the red flag for you? What what made you say, oh, I, I think something like this is gonna happen? Oh I don't know that there was one thing, you know, it's just it's just the totality of everything, Max. I think mm -hmm. uh, I can't I can't point to one thing, but but I, I can remember saying when I first started the center 12 years ago, we didn't, the term woke wasn't out there at the time, but I used to talk, I used to get invited to speak at rotaries and all kinds of events. But like I said, even, even we've been canceled as far as that, I don't get those invitations anymore. Nobody wants to hear the non narrative and not, you know, but I used to say 12 years ago, you know, this, this idea, you know, we used to laugh at these politically correct ideas, you know, what, if we're at the dinner table with our family or at the water cooler at work, Look at these crazy ideas. You know, can you believe people actually think that? Well, and I used to say, but you know what? A lot of these ideas are becoming law now. Governments are actually adopting these, and I don't understand why. 
So, so it, it was that general kind of thing where these foolish ideas that have no basis in science, no basis in research, no basis in economics, no basis in medicine, uh, no basis in co common culture or societal norms, all of a sudden start becoming government policy. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the trend I saw back then that got me involved, that these absolutely, and it's gotten 10 times worse, I could never have imagined that we talking, we'd be talking about men becoming pregnant and men competing in women's sports. I could never have imagined that we're trying to force young kids to, to chop off their breasts or chop off their, their, their sexual parts and, and, and take hormones and mutilate themselves at age 12, 13. I could never have thought that would be a politically correct thing or worse become law as it is right now in this state. It's, it's illegal for a, it's illegal well, I don't want to say illegal, but you would lose your funding and your status. You're not going to get thrown in jail if you're a psychologist who tries to talk a young youngster out of transitioning. Can you believe that? That's actually a law in this state passed a few years ago. So it's really gotten crazy. And for some reason, this craziness still rules the day. So a lot of people would say that 2016 was the was the big turning point. Do you believe that? Election, That's election, you mean? Yeah. Well, Trump's election really did two things. It, it yeah, it clearly fueled the the uh, the um, urgency on the left. And, and but 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 I also think the longer I think, but I think that a lot of people are recognizing that the left's fanaticism is a house of cards. And I I do think the tide is starting to turn back to common sense. People understand. Even if they're even if they want to believe this woke stuff, I think inside they understand, well, this 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 isn't right. Trump's election, on the other hand, has started to build a new conservative movement in the country. Uh, hasn't taken back enough territory yet, but but uh, so so the near term effect it will benefit has benefited the left, uh, but that's a house of cards. I think the long term conservative movement that Trump. Um, built and and is still building to some degree whether or not he ever runs again i think will eventually in, in in the next few years rule the day so yeah you're right that 2016 was a pivotal you know with minorities um coming over to the republican party with blue collar workers coming over to the republican party it's now flipped the democrat party is now the, the party of the rich elites so and, and the corporate big corporate cronies it's all flipped and the Republican Party is now the party of, of the average citizen. And it's going to take a few years for that to 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 gain sway. But but it's going to happen. Trust me. So so why did that happen? Why did the two parties, quote unquote, completely flip? Because, I mean, it, when you look back historically, right, let's go back to the Civil War, the first Republican, Abraham Lincoln. A lot of people don't know that. Right. Anti-slavery party and and. How come and 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 a lot of it was a lot of rich people, I guess, and and Ronald, and then you go forward another hundred years to Ronald Reagan, it's still trickle down economics. It's all about that, and and now you jump upwards to now, and Democrats were always historically unions, uh, blue collar people like you had mentioned, and uh, you know now it's completely flipped, like you had just said. Why is that the case? Why did that happen? Well, I think it flipped because um, the Democrat Party uh, decided to um, 
abandoned its base largely. Uh, I don't think it's so much that the Re Republican Party just swooped in to pick up the scraps because it abandoned uh, their blue collar, common sense base, union base, and started starting siding with the elitists, the big companies, you know, who would help them shut down people or, you know, or back them and uh, and siding with the elitists and, and, and these progressives and these, you know, this movement. Uh, so they have, they're the ones who have moved, in my view, the Democrat Party. And the Republican Party is just there to pick up the scraps. I don't think the Republican Party or the conservative movement has done anything all that earth shattering. But but their benefit from the from the harsh move left uh, by the left, uh, by the Democrats. And um, so clearly the Democrat Party is the one that has has dramatically uh, made the difference and and. I think in the end to their uh, not to their benefit. Interesting. Um, so I'm young. I'm 21 years old. Uh, I grew up in Rhode Island and I, I follow both sides of the political island within the state with of the political aisle rather in the state. And I notice a lot from the Republican Party in terms of uh, sort of the events that they put on. And I remember earlier this year, there was a campaign sort of event and a couple of Republican candidates were there and they held it at an old folks home. And it was in Southern Rhode Island. And I'm like, you know, if they want to win, if they want to get elected, if they want their party to prevail, why are they at, an old folks home. It was like the only event they had had all year. I'm not going to go to that. I'm not saying I agree with them, but if I was interested in politics, I'm a young person who's interested in politics. Why would I want to go to an old folks home event? Like, so my question is, is there a plan or sort of a game plan for the conservative movement in the state of Rhode Island to try to get back into the swing of things and, you know, become the party in the state? Well, first, let me say we we are not intimately familiar with the workings or strategy of the Republican Party, while while many Republican candidates have similar views as as, as I do. And and while I know all of those people, we're, we're not part of that. You okay. know, I, I, I'm not part of that inner circle. Um, uh, the, the, you know, don't, the, you know, I, I don't know that it's true that that would have been the only event. Senior citizens homes are important when it comes to elections. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's where the mail ballots come from. We know how important mail ballots have become in this state. I can tell you that I do know that the Republican party has a very, in this state has, has, because it's not illegal, you know, ballot harvesting and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's not illegal in this state. So, and the Democrats were the only ones doing it. I can tell you that is changing. They are paying people just like the Democrats are to go out and collect them. And they're going to do it in an honest way, of course, but go out and collect mail ballots. Senior citizens homes are a really big source of voters. They're the, they're often your most reliable voters, at least those who are mobile uh, and, and mail ballots for those who aren't. Um, they're a very important constituency. So, so appealing to that base is important. I can tell you what we do. While we we don't tie directly it to voters or to elections, 
we have on my, one, my staff, Larry Goheny, someone you might want to have on. He's, he's a millennial. He's, he's a little older than you. He's in his mid thirties, but, but, but he, he, he runs a uh, Northeast. He's the head of a Northeast organization called America's future who does target uh, millennials and as a generation Z or X or whatever. What's the yeah, one? Something after? like that. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know my generations too well, but uh, so there is a concerted effort in the conservative movement to reach out to young people. I can tell you that. And, and my, uh, my, my uh, Larry on my staff is, is heads that effort in the Northeast. Um, whether that will translate into votes, I don't know. So it, you, again, it's an all of the above. Every constituency is important. Working class people, blue collar people, you know, union, union per personnel. I think we're, we're seeing, start to see that change in this state where, where union elites are clearly, union bosses are clearly aligned with the Democrats on the left. Uh, many blue collar workers are, are not, you know, they're, they're, they've, they've like, no, we, we can't, we can't buy this stuff. This is not, you know, we're, we're good, just salt of the earth kind of people, you know, and, uh, and they are, and we can't go along with this, this, all this radicals theories that they're pushing around out there. And, and especially when it comes to our kids. So, mm -hmm. um, so, so that's why I say, I do believe the tide is turning. I do believe it's peaked. I, I, I believe the, the progressive left, the power of the progressive left in this country and in this state has peaked. How quickly the pendulum will swing back, I don't know. How much the Republican Party in this state is organized in that regard, I don't know. But I can tell you nationally, because my think tank's part of a national association. I have 59 other brothers and sisters in other states throughout the country. Uh, think tanks. And I can tell you that we are working in the all of the above approach. And, and trust me, the tide's going to start turning back. So would that be a good thing if all of a sudden the country just went completely Republican, completely conservative? No. We elected. A, OK, no, so, we need balance. I can tell you that okay. my, my sister think tank, for instance, in South Carolina, South Carolina is as red as Rhode Island is blue. And they have almost identical corruption and insider crony uh, policy as we have here in Rhode Island. So, you know, the old saying is true. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Nobody should have absolute power. No party, no person. It's, it, it, we do need balance. You know, I, I want a good majority of uh, conservatives and Republicans, but we should not have absolute power. No. Good. Well, all right. Very interesting stuff. Um, I think it's, uh, very interesting to hear you talk about, you know, basically the current state of Rhode Island and, and politics and, and what's going on. Uh, I think we're going to start coming to a close here and, uh, something I end every podcast with is this question. If you could leave one piece of advice to the listener, you know, whether it's business politics or, or life advice, what would that advice be? That's easy. Be yourself, stick to your principles, never give up, never back down, never be swayed against what you feel is natural or principled to you. Uh, I had my principles. I told you I sacrificed some of those, uh, you know, not politically so much, but, you know, money wasn't the most important thing. My family was uh, in politics. I, I believe I, I am. I am. I am trying to advocate for what I believe, whether I don't care what people call me. I don't care whether I win or lose. I go to bed at night knowing 
I'm I, I'm me. I'm doing what I know is me. I've got 64 years of knowing who I am. There ain't nobody going to change that right now. Much of the dismay of, of many people close to me who think I'm way too stubborn, and I am. But, but part of that is because I believe so strongly in what I believe. So don't ever question that. But, but, but it's not a whim, you know, standing on print is not a whim. It, it's got to be a foundational principle in your life or in your belief system. Too many people think, well, I really believe I can come, become a woman. Come on. Do you really, do you really <laughs> believe that? So again, it's got to be a foundational firm principle, but that's it. Sleeping well at night and having that inner peace is what it's all about. Nothing else matters to me. So uh, to me, it's easy. Well, I really appreciate that that advice and I appreciate you coming on and, and telling us all about you and your life story. Uh, if you want to give one more plug to your podcast, that's all right. The podcast is called In the Dugout with Mike Stenhouse. Yep. But again, it's right on right featured prominently right on the homepage of OceanStateCurrent.com, where you'll find all other good kind of content. And Max, uh, you know, maybe uh, I, I like to look at you. Maybe we'll have you as a guest as my show sometime. I'd love it. So thank you very much for coming on. Thanks everybody for listening and I will catch you in the next one.